Good evening, everyone. This is Crystal from the Spooky Barber Babes, and I wanted to say Happy New Year. Um, so, as you all may know, we took off the month of December just as kind of a refresh, get ourselves back into it, um, do some research. Plus, both of our jobs have been highly um, active because, you know, we cut hair and everyone wants holiday haircuts. Uh, as you can tell, I sound horrible right now, and that's just because um, that's a wonderful thing called winter is not kind to me ever. <laughs> um, but before we get started today, I wanted to kind of let everybody know of a few uh, plans we have for this year. So last year, we were kind of all over the place with, um, you know, the cartoon conspiracies, the, you know, the murder this week in history. We were still trying to find ourselves last year. I'm not saying that I'm going to stick away from the cartoon conspiracies, um, but that might actually be like a separate channel that we might start up just so I can keep it kind of separate from this. Um, or I may just do that as like an IG live thing. Um, haven't really decided or hell, maybe even just a YouTube exclusive when it comes to those. Um, but we'll see. But for this year, starting off 2022 with a bit of a bang, we're going to be doing all 50 states for one week out of each month. Now you may say, but Crystal, there's 52 weeks in a year. Yes, I know this. That is giving us time to take days off throughout the year that, you know, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, um, maybe even sometimes where we have stuff recorded, um, but we just forgot to schedule it because let's face it, we're human too. Things happen and we both have day jobs, um, but it's more so so we can actually have time with our families. Um, we want to definitely say thank you to everyone for your support over the first six months of our podcast. Um, yes, I still say um a lot. <laughs> But uh, thank you. I appreciate every single one of you. I know Brianna appreciates every single one of you. Um, I'm loving seeing that people actually are getting involved on our Facebook page and on our Instagram and saying like, hey, this is what we want to hear. Um, please feel free to continue to do that. Like, give us ideas. There's so many states that we're going to try as I said, try to have three episodes a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Some of them may be long. Some of them may be like quick little short snippets. Depends on what we can find. Um, I know we're going to be kicking off the beginning of the year with not my home state, but the state I live in now, um, and which is Delaware. And everybody's like, Delaware, really? You know, we get the jokes of Delaware. Um... Delaware was the first state to join the union. So we are not going to be going in alphabetical order with this. We are actually going to be going in order of each state and when they joined the union. So if you're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Trust me. I've done my thorough research to make sure that this is going to be all in the correct order. Um, so as of today, we'll be starting off with our first Delaware murder, and that is going to be the Route 40 killer, Stephen Brian Pinnell. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. 
Roughly 30 years has passed now since the killings of the Route 40 killer, Brian Pinnell. Honestly, this happened a few years before I was born. Um, but he is still known as Delaware's only serial killer. He was convicted of two murders originally and suspected of at least five. But the bigger questions are, why did a 31-year-old married father of two go on a killing spree? Why did he ask to be executed but not admit to guilt? And how did he pick his victims and when did these feelings start? Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I've done a lot of research. Um, a lot of what I've pulled, I found through different Delaware articles, um, like the News Journal, Delaware Today. I just kind of want to cite all of that. So like all my quotes and everything like that are coming from those articles that um, I just wanted to get that reference out there in the beginning. <laughs> but I just want to kind of like jump right on in. On November 29th, 1987, it was a chilly, rainy evening, three days after Thanksgiving. Shirley Ellis was last seen leaving her family home in Newark's Brookmont Farms development around 6 p.m. I'm going to pause here to let you all know that yes, Delaware, we say Newark. A lot of people in the comments are going to say, but it's pronounced Newark. No, it is Newark in Delaware, Newark in New Jersey. There are two totally different areas. Just wanted to say that. <laughs> she was headed to Wilmington Hospital to take a Thanksgiving meal to a patient who was undergoing AIDS treatments. The 23-year-old was a former prostitute who left the life behind and was trying to move forward in life. She wanted to become a nurse. She went and got all these nursing books. Um, but sadly, with her knowledge of her past life, she knew the best way to take the 14-mile trek from the hospital, like where she lived, to the hospital in the city was to hitchhike along Route 40. Clearly, someone did stop and pick her up. By 9.25 p.m. that evening, two teenagers who were trying to uh, go find a nice place to make out had found her body with her legs spread and she was partially clothed. She was bound at her wrists and ankles, and she had black duct tape attached to her hair. The police think the duct tape was used to keep her from screaming. However, the way she was positioned indicated possible sexual assault, but upon further investigation on with the autopsy, there was no evidence of sexual assault. The autopsy did, however, reveal that she was tortured with work tools before she had died. Evidence proved she had a ligature wrapped around her neck and was repeatedly struck in the head with a hammer. Kathleen Jennings, the state prosecutor, stated in an article on DelawareToday.com, there was no reason for Shirley Ellis to be killed. There was no angry boyfriend or anything that would connect a murderer to her death. For a time, people did believe that it was an interstate trucker that had committed the murder and that it was a one-off. Unfortunately, seven months later, on June 28, 1988, around 11.30 p.m., Catherine DeMauro, 31 years old, was seen walking along Route 40. Now, 
you'll surely see a trend in this. DeMauro had a long history of prostitution arrest, but sadly it was unclear and still remains unclear if the divorcee was working the night or just hitchhiking when she accepted a ride from a stranger in a blue panel van. Her body was discovered the next morning completely naked in a construction area where the Fox Run apartment complex now stands. Everything with both murders were identical, but the only difference is that on her body, she was discovered naked, but there was random blue fibers all over her. Her wrists and ankles were bound just like uh, Shirley. She had been silenced with duct tape and there was no evidence of sexual assault either, just pure mutilation with what they deemed was work tools. Um, but again, the blue fibers were the biggest clue that they got out of Damara's murder. Funny story is, uh, about two years ago, I actually lived in the Fox Run apartment complex. So when I tell you this literally hits home, like... It, it kind of hits home. <laughs> One week later, after her uh, murder, Delaware State Police and Newcastle County Police Department formed a task force, which had, which had its headquarters based by the Newcastle County Airport. James Hendricks, who is a, uh, a former police officer, police chief, uh, was quoted in the Delaware Today article stating, We had access to an airplane helicopters, and rental vehicles. Money wasn't an issue. I don't know anyone who has ever worked for a government agency where money wasn't an issue. We had an unlimited budget. The task force met with the Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia, where they concluded that a serial killer had come to Delaware. Since Route 40 was the only connection between the two cases, undercover female officers started dressing as prostitutes and ended up walking that stretch of highway on Route 40 looking for clues and engaging in flirty banter with men who would stop and talk to them. None of the officers, however, got into any of the vehicles. It's kind of like their way of keeping the female officers safe. Um, while female officers did that, other task force members tried to focus on concluding what the blue fibers were that were covered uh, in Demora, on Demora's body. On August 22nd of the same year, Margaret Lynn Finner, a known prostitute, went missing. She was working the streets along the route, along Route 13. And for those of you that um, are listening from out of state and whatnot, or even out of country, so Route 40 spans a good distance, but there's a stretch when you're in Newcastle where Route 40 and Route 13 run parallel, and there is a, call it like a wishbone kind of thing, where 40 and 13 meet up, and they actually merge together and become Route 13. Um, I want to say from Bear to Newcastle, which Bear is where the Fox Run apartment complex is, you're looking at roughly 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops, depending on traffic. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of how close uh, all these murders were and how easy it is to get from Route 40 to Route 13. It's literally, like I said, they merge together. And it's funny, well, not really funny, but ironic that they merge together uh, 
want to say like a mile, mile and a half away from the airport where their uh, task force center was um, created, which I want to say that the headquarters is still there. I want to say that, but don't, don't quote me. <laughs> um, witnesses saw Margaret leave in a blue Ford panel van with round headlights driven by a white male. Her body, however, wasn't found for three months. And when she was found, she was found near the C&D Canal, which is the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. Um, that's... Eh, it, it, it's, it's a little further away. Um, her body had such advanced decomposition that a cause of death could not be determined. And over 30 years later, her death still remains unsolved. Um, which it, it kind of sucks because that is one that I hate to say he, he got away with because they couldn't really connect him. It's just, it just seemed too suspicious. So I think they kind of just like, yeah, we think he did this, but there's nothing there. There's no DNA. There's no anything on that, on the poor Margaret. <laughs> now we're actually going to move on to someone who wasn't a victim, thankfully, but I mean, <laughs> this woman is lucky. Newcastle County police officer, 23 year old Renee Thrasher came face to face with the Route 40 killer on September 14th, 1988, while undercover. A blue Ford panel van with round headlights had drove by her multiple times that evening. And from what I have been reading was there were lines of cars literally waiting just to talk to this woman. Like they said it was like four to five cars at a time and it was doctors, lawyers, school teachers, you name it, they were waiting for this woman. So like our killer drove by, stopped a little bit away, drove, you know, drove a little further. Uh, Thrasher estimated that it circled her seven times in 20 minutes. Uh, when she walked to a more secluded area, the van had stopped. And when the driver opened the side door, Thrasher noticed blue carpet covering the interior she playfully ran her hand across the carpet pulling fibers from it to be tested because she suspected that this might be what they found on Demura's body she described him as and i quote different than any other person who stopped to talk to me it was hard to get into conversation he wasn't in the moment it was like he was looking right through me the driver then demanded she get into his van and she refused to do so. When he asked her again, she made up a story about being tired from partying all day and needing sleep. The man became suspicious and drove off. Officer Hendrick was able to run the van's plates while the officer Thrasher was engaging in small talk. The van was registered to one Stephen Brian Pinnell, a Delaware electrician with no criminal history. On September 16th, 1988, 22-year-old Michelle Gordon, a Newcastle resident, went missing. She was also a known prostitute to local law enforcement. She was last seen on Route 40 getting into, yet again, the blue Ford panel van. Someone 
they and I could not find who this witness was, but a witness that knew her and Pinnell was able to identify the vehicle immediately. Four days later, on September 20th, Gordon's body washed up on the banks of the CND Canal. Gordon was a cocaine addict who was the only victim to die while being tortured. Medical examiners noted that due to the drugs in her system, her heart was unable to withstand the shock of her beating. Three days later, Kathleen Meyer, another Brookmont Farms resident, was last seen alive at 9.30 p.m. hitchhiking on Route 40. An off-duty officer saw her getting into the blue Ford van and got the plate number off the van, remembering that that van was a prime suspect for all these murders. Sadly, Meyer's body has never been found. Um, So, like, still to this day, like, she's another one never been found, which is really, really sad. Um, At this time, however, Pinnell was being heavily monitored. He was being followed by, you know, undercovers. There was a warrant out to literally just keep an eye on this man. I mean, his car, his van showing up at all these places where, and he's the last person that people are seeing these women get into his vehicle before, you know, they, they turn up dead. Um, but officer Thrasher, um, recalls sitting next to Pinnell at a Moody Blues concert while on a stakeout. And during this time, she met his daughter who asked her for a donation for a school fundraiser. And from the article that I was reading, Dash was like, you don't, you know, that's just a child. You don't really want this child to see what's really going on. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you guys. I tried to like look into um, Pennell's family, but truth be told, they're... <laughs> They're still alive. Do I know if they're local anymore? No, I didn't want to get into that detail um, because I didn't want to bring up the family. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was already harsh enough for them to live through. I can't imagine what those what his children think of him now. Um, so yeah, just before I get any questions like, well, why didn't you look into the family? Well, that's why. You know, I mean, how would you feel if you found out that your dad, you know, murdered and killed people. I wouldn't be too keen on people, you know, trying to reach out and talk to me. <laughs> Delaware Attorney General Charles Oberly had gotten a search warrant for Pennell's van. In the van, he had a torture kit inside. In it containing was containing pliers, a whip, handcuffs, needles, knives, and restraints. And when I say restraints, um I'm not too sure what, like, do they mean leather or whatnot? I, d- I don't know. It literally, every article I found just says restraints. Um, the duct tape that they found inside the van did match the duct tape that was found on DeMaro, the same brand. And the carpet fibers matched the fibers that were found on her body as well. Uh, Pinnell, however, this is, there's a couple interesting things about this Pinnell case because there's a lot of firsts for this case in general for serial killer in Delaware. Um, and you know, Pinnell was the first case where DNA evidence was used in a criminal trial. And I'll touch base on that a little more later on. 
On November 29, 1988, an arrest warrant was issued for the arrest of Pennell. A year after he took his first victim's life, he was in handcuffs himself. He invoked his right to remain silent as he was charged with the murder of DeMauro, Gordon, and Ellis. Sadly, with the other two murders that were found in the canal, he couldn't be charged due to lack of evidence at that time. According to Hendrick, he was a normal all-American person, normal married father with no criminal record. No one would have looked at his past and seen this coming. There was no signs, no red flags, no warnings. Prior to his trial, defense tried attacking the fiber evidence, stating that Tashner didn't have the authority to seize the strands the way that she did. Like, basically, she collected the evidence unlawfully and illegally, and that they just shouldn't be using it. Which, I mean, like, are are you kidding me? Like, okay, whatever. Um, But the Superior Court Judge Richard Giebeling... Uh, did say he denied his the attorney's claims, concluding that the carpet was in plain view once the door was open and she was invited into the vehicle. So see, he waived any kind of like, oh, you can't touch my stuff. I'm inviting you into my vehicle. Come on, come in, get in. Love me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, sorry, it's a little out of touch, but Overly later stated that if the fibers were deemed inadmissible. Everything else would have been kept out uh, under the fruit of the poisonous tree legal doctrine and could have devastated the case. So basically, if those fibers would have been out, then they only would have had like the sightings of the van. The fibers is what hinged their case to, you know, get what they needed. In September of 1989, Pennell's criminal trial would begin where Jennings, spoke about her earlier, were in, would introduce the DNA evidence. Now, again, this would be the first case where DNA evidence would be used in a criminal trial. Despite the learning curve and not having a lot of experts in the field of DNA evidence, the fibers and the DNA were not the strongest part of the case. Like, which is, oh, this man, no. Stephen Pennell was actually the strongest part of his own case in getting his own verdict. Like, holy crap. <laughs> his lawyer, Maurer, decided to gamble and let Pennell testify as to how the victim's blood and hair ended up inside his van. Pennell claimed to have picked up Catherine for oral sex for $25. And joked that afterwards, after he, you know, supposedly dropped her off, uh, she returned $10 to him. The jury was horrified by the details that he gave. His attorney stated that his testimony was, quote, as fine a piece of testifying as I've ever seen. He explained everything. Where he got slaughtered was his demeanor. He had these cold, dark eyes that didn't move around a lot. The state prosecutor agreed, saying that the way he described Damara was so cold, he talked about her like she was some piece of garbage he could just throw away. Although Pennell came across unlikable, the jury still struggled with the murder charges. 
The jury had spent eight days reviewing the evidence, which again (laughs) is the longest still to this day deliberation in Delaware history. So there's another thing that this case holds. On November 23rd, 1989, Thanksgiving Day, right before a snowstorm was about to roll in, the jury, however, had a verdict. Now, not saying that they're, you know, hmm. The jury was deadlocked on the Gordon case, however, but, however, he was convicted of the two murders of Ellis and DeMauro. So, yay! He got charged for two. The jury was also deadlocked on him being sentenced to death. In 1990, Pinnell was sentenced to two life terms, one per victim. Marr did begin the lengthy appeals process, citing the fiber evidence yet again. Seizure was unconstitutional, among other things. The state, however, responded with indicting Pinnell of the Meyer and Gordon murders based on new evidence. Yay! Pinnell requested at that moment to proceed without a lawyer, which that motion was granted. Now, this is where things get a little, hmm, okay. Pinnell then pled no contest to the two murder charges that were just added and asked to be sentenced to death. However, he didn't confess to the murders. No, like, didn't admit to killing anyone, but, you know, he was like, okay, kill me, that's fine. He was quoted saying at his hearing where they they were trying to say like, oh, he should be spared. Um, no, he literally stood on the stands and was like, the law, and I quote, the law was developed from one book and it's that book I quote from. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, whoever kills a person, the person shall be put to death. So you're confessing by like stating that but you're not actually admitting guilt i'm sorry to me that just screams hi i'm guilty put me to death come on i did it let's go just just get it over with um i that's what i'm getting from that i mean you're gonna quote that and say whoever kills a person the person shall be put to death okay well then so did you just admit that you killed these women or Uh, What? A 1991 psychiatric evaluation was submitted to the Delaware Supreme Court, which essentially cleared Pinnell of depression, paranoia, and psychosis. Basically, what this base means is you can't claim insanity. And I wanted to make sure that I got this in here because it's referenced later on um, during the trial. So on Halloween, that's October 31st for all of our wonderful people that live somewhere where Halloween doesn't, isn't a thing, of 1991, Pinnell was sentenced to death. Under the Delaware law, all death sentences are automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court. And on February 11th, 1992, Pinnell appeared before a five-judge court and asked for his execution. He also still remains to this day the only person to ever represent themselves at the Supreme Court and the only one to ask for their death. Yet again, more first for this case. Like, dude, really? During this hearing, however, he 
spoke in third person as if he was trying to convince the court to put to death a vicious criminal, never speaking in first person, never saying I. He was basically acting as if he was a prosecutor in a, in a way. The court unanimously agreed that execution was an appropriate punishment for Pinnell's crimes. His date for execution was set for March 14th of 1992. While Pinnell was content with this ruling, because he literally got what he asked for, two random men that Pinnell had never met filed appeals on his behalf, but were quickly dismissed for a lack of standing. And basically, what that means is if you have no connection to the person or no connection to the case, you have no standing to hold off on, um, you know, any appeals like you you don't matter i hate to say it that way but it, it, it's kind of like you don't matter but however vera pinnell steven's wife had standing because again they were married and she petitioned the american civil liberties union of the delaware chapter to argue a stay of execution for him a widener university law professor by by the name of lawrence hammermish i'm hoping i'm saying that right um, he agreed to represent Vera, and what's interesting about this is what he, what he said. Uh, I quote, I think I did the best I could. Um, the man had zero expertise in criminal law, so honestly, he just should not have jumped in on it at all. Um, but he stated... He tried challenging the psychiatric evaluation, saying it was not thorough and that there needed to be a more complete evaluation done. However, the Supreme Court rejected the argument and the execution was still scheduled for March 14th. Shortly before his execution, though, he called his former attorney and asked him to sit with him in execution due to his fear of saying something stupid. You know, but again, his lawyer was like, um, I haven't heard from you in like a year, bud. There was not much besides like what his last meal was, which I couldn't even really find what that was. But from everything I was reading, like there really wasn't anything. He didn't really speak to the media or anything like that. He didn't give anybody what they wanted. On March 14th, 1992... Pinnell was the first man executed in Delaware in 46 years. He died without any final words and no final answers to any questions. Officer Hendricks was hopeful that before Pinnell died, he would have at least given a clue or a place to look for Kathleen Myers. That didn't happen. Pinnell took that secret with him to his grave. Now, this is where I kind of just get into my own kind of little rant that I usually do at the end of these things. Um, still to this day, there's no whereabouts where, like, in concern with Kathleen Meyer's body. Um, there hasn't been any reports of remains washing up in the CND Canal. Um, clearly, Pinnell had the last say in this. Like, he literally, and I hate to say this, he took that woman to his grave. Um... But why? Why did he take her to the grave with him? Like, why not just tell people where she was? I mean, you've already admitted. But what made her different from the others? What did he do differently with her than his other victims? Because 
she wasn't found. All his other victims were found. He disposed of them. What did he do with her? There's a pile of questions and sadly no answers to any of them. And then while doing, like I said earlier, while doing my research, you know, there was no red flags in his history to state that he had severe violence streaks, that he went and damaged, you know, animals. There was nothing. So, if there was no history of violence, no history of outbursts or anything like that, and he still tried to claim innocence, why demand the legit ultimate punishment? Was this his way of confessing and saving the victim's families and his own family's years of stress and bullshit? Or did he just want to be released from his wrongdoings and that the best way he could do that was just to get out? I mean, reading into the articles and stuff, um, they forget who it was. I want to say it was his lawyer had deemed that he was a conformist. So basically, okay, you have all this evidence on me, so I'm just going to roll over. Um, But I just, I don't know. There's still a few things that doesn't sit right with me. And like I said, I've lived in this area. Um, like I live close to the C&D Canal. If you, uh, eh, I guess kind of close-ish. But um, I mean, I, I grew up in Maryland, like right across the border between Maryland and Delaware. If body and remains would have came up, I'm pretty sure it would have popped up somewhere on um, anything that I would have found. But there was nothing. I don't know. It's just really sad, you know, to know that there's one family out there that's just not going to know what happened. Well, that's it for tonight. Let me know what you think. If you want to follow the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Spooky Barber Babes. That's it for me for tonight. We'll see you later on this week with two other cases following closely here in Delaware. Have a good night.